Well, good morning. It's good to be here with you all. Um, I wanted to reiterate how excited the leadership was over your participation last Sunday. We were just super encouraged by the way so many of you stepped in and stepped up into home groups and into serving groups. It's just great. Now, you know, we're, we're a growing church, and because of that, we, uh, we will experience some growing pains. And I know that some of you are a little disappointed that, that you weren't able to, to get in the group that you would hope, that it was closed before you even had a chance. Um, you know, we do want this to be a place where, where you can belong, be known, and be loved, but the leadership, um, we be learning. Um, and so <laughs> there's things we'll do next time that we do differently, um, but if you are not in a home group, there's room, please come see me. I'd love to help you get in, in a Christian community that can strengthen your faith, and we long for you to participate in that. So please come see me, and I'd be happy to help with that. Well, this morning, we start our study in the book of Philemon. Now, the book of Philemon is one entire chapter. It's actually a short letter that Paul writes from prison. He's in prison waiting for his trial in Rome, and he writes to this man named Philemon. Now, what we can deduce about Philemon is that he was a very wealthy man with a large house. The church, local church met at his house. And like most wealthy men, almost all wealthy men in Rome, he had slaves. And one of his slaves was named Onesimus. And apparently Onesimus stole something from Philemon and ran away. And while Onesimus was a fugitive, he came under the teaching of the Apostle Paul and was converted to the faith. His conversion was so genuine and so sincere that he, spent his, he was spending himself to, to serve Paul. But Paul knew, hey, listen, Onesimus is, is, is Philemon's slave, and so he sends Onesimus back to Philemon, but he writes to Philemon this letter that Philemon might accept Onesimus back not as a slave, but as a brother. And so that's the letter that we're going to look at these next few weeks. That's kind of the backstory to Philemon. Now, the backs, there's this, I need to give you a little backstory to this sermon as well. So we have this preaching calendar that, you know, we've put our names in to sign up for. And I saw Kevin, this was probably two months ago, I saw Kevin was going to be out this week. So I put my name in there and, and I had no idea what I was going to be preaching on. So then a few, you know, several weeks ago, I look at the preaching calendar and it says Philemon 1. Not Philemon chapter 1, Philemon verse 1. And so I text Kevin, I'm like, seriously? <laughs> one verse? Maybe we can have Reggie do some extra songs. <laughs> So, so, so Kevin laughs and, and he texts me back. He says, you can focus on the, the phrase, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Here's Paul, a prisoner in Rome, and he calls himself Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I'm like, okay, I can go with that. I can work on that. So I'm, I'm thinking and I'm praying and I'm reading and I'm studying and I'm writing and I'm rewriting. And, and finally, like Thursday, the, the sermon, you know, it's taken shape. It's still bumpy and lumpy. In fact, it's still bumpy and lumpy, but... but <laughs> But it's taken shape, and I'm like, okay. And then I get this, this email from Jessica, our church administrator, and she says, there's these, these handouts we've been given, these little journaling books, and, and it's got Philemon in it for you to take notes. Feel free to help yourself to that, to write on those. It's a wonderful gift, and, and it's the ESV translation. So I'm like, okay, cool. So I look up the verse in the ESV, and it says, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. And I'm like, oh, no. There, there goes my sermon. Um, and so I, I do what you can now do on the internet. I pull up 20 different translations 
20 different modern English translations. And all but one obscure translation translates that verse, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And in fact, the ESV, when Paul says something very similar in Ephesians, the ESV translates it in Ephesians 3.1, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Only here <laughs> in the ESV, in what you have in front of you, is it translated, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. But I began to think, I'm like, what would cause the translator of, of, a, of Philemon 1 to, 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 step, to make this semantic reach not to get wonky, but to take the Greek genitive of possession and translate it this way instead of the clear genitive use of Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Why would he do that? What's the difference between Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus? Well, if I'm a prisoner for Christ Jesus, it sounds like I have volition in that, right? I've stepped up. I am now a prisoner for Christ Jesus. But if I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus... I'm captive to him. My will is not a big part of this. I am imprisoned by Christ. And there is a part of us in our modern culture where we exalt freedom above all else. It is one of the major gods, if you will, that we worship. It's the God of human volition and freedom. Now, many of you know that college football season started yesterday. Go Buffs. Yeah, so... If you were to go to a college football game, before you did your chopping or your chomping or whatever your tribal gesticulation might be, before you spent three and a half hours chanting your tribal chants and dancing your tribal dances, before you did that, every tribe and nation would stand to their feet and first, together as one, celebrate the fact that we live in what? The land and the home, indeed, we celebrate that, and we should. You know, arguably, the United States of America has more political and religious freedom than any other nation in the world, and perhaps any nation that ever existed. It is a wonderful amount of freedom that we have, glorious freedom to be celebrated. And what about the brave? I mean, I am literally brought to tears at times when I think of the courage and the bravery of the men and women in the armed forces, and the first responders who put their own lives at risk so, so that they might rescue us from danger. I have nothing but admiration for their bravery. But when we look at our nation at a closer level, at an individual, nation, uh, individual level, we find that we are a people imprisoned by compulsive appetites enslaved and imprisoned by compulsive appetites, whether they be alcohol or drugs or food or shopping or gambling or pornography or social media or anger or worry. We are a people imprisoned. Though we be the freest nation in the world, we are a people imprisoned by our compulsive, destructive desires and appetites. And what about fear? Fifty years ago, anxiety disorder was an unknown thing. Today, 12.5% of the adult population in the United States, 12.5% are on anti-anxiety medicine. 
we are in, well, that's all that's a medicine. That doesn't mean that, that's all that are taking prescription medicine. But clearly, there's a broader stretch than that, right? We are riddled by irrational fears, possessed by irrational fears, imprisoned by compulsive desires and irrational fear. And I think part of the reason for this imprisonment is because we do not understand the nature of true freedom. The cultural definition, our cultural definition of true freedom is the right to do whatever you want, right? That's how we define freedom, the right to do whatever you want. But tell me, if you give an alcoholic the right to drink as much as he wants, will he be free? If you give a compulsive worrier the right to worry as much as they want, will they be free? If you give an angry man the right to spew his vitriol and hatred across the internet whenever and however he wants, will he be free? No, he'll be imprisoned by his destructive, compulsive appetites. You see, what we have failed to understand is that true freedom is not the right to do whatever you want. True freedom is the want to do whatever is right. True freedom is not the right to do whatever you want. True freedom is the want to do whatever is right. When our hearts are captive, when our hearts are prisoner to Christ Jesus, and our singular desire is to love God and bless others, we are free. And that freedom cannot be taken away. I mean, think of it this way. Suppose a man has the poor fortune of being born a slave. If freedom is the right to do whatever you want, that man will never be free. But if true freedom comes through the want to do whatever is right, and that man's heart is captive to Christ Jesus, and he longs to do what is right and pleasing to God, what blesses others, he is free to do that whether he is free or a slave. He is a slave, but he's Christ's free man. Why? Because his heart is captive to the love of Christ. We need to understand the biblical nature of true freedom. In Romans chapter 6, verse 18, Paul says this, You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Your heart is owned by a love for God and a love for his law, and you are free. There is a freedom that comes when our heart is captive to Christ and his law and his righteousness and his love. Galatians 5.1, Paul says this, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Paul's call here in Galatians 5 to stand firm is a clear warning that we can, we can forfeit this freedom that we have in Christ. We can lose it. He's saying, stand firm. Make sure you, you do not fall into this prison that sin is waiting to put you in. When the Pharisees first started, when the sect of the Pharisees first started, it was a group of men who were earnest and honest and were genuinely seeking to please God. They earnestly wanted to please God. They didn't want to fall captive to sin. And the Pharisees viewed the law as a fence, protecting them from falling in the ditch of sin. 
And that's not a wrong view of the law. That's one of the right views of the law, but they viewed it as offense. But the Pharisees once went one step further. They said, if, if, if God's fence is protecting us from falling into, into the prison of sin, then to be really safe, what we'll do is we'll build a stricter fence, a tighter fence inside that fence, and then our fence will keep us from ever getting close to God's fence, and then we'll be really safe. But if one fence is good, well, let's build another, and another, and another, and another inside that. And, another. and pretty soon, these guys had so many fences that they had built that you could barely move without bumping into a fence. Fences are not bad. I have covenant eyes on all my computers. That's a good fence. That's a right fence. But I'm a fool if I think that that fence is sufficient to protect my heart from the seductive forces of this world. Fences are good, fences are right, but fences don't touch our hearts. And that's where the problem is. You see, if you do not allow your heart to become captive to Christ Jesus, then there is no fence that you build that you can't dig under, crawl over, knock down, or get around. And not only that, but the crazy thing about fences is when we build a fence, they make us want what's on the other side even more. The more fences we build, the more we want what's on the other side. They can't change the twistedness of our sinful hearts. Though they be good, it's not enough to keep us in freedom. In the Australian outback, there is vast and arid land. And the farmers know there's two ways to keep their cattle on the, on the land. One is they can build a fence that restricts their movement. The other is they can dig a well that offers the water of life. And they stay, the animals stay because they are being offered the water of life. This is how the psalmists viewed the law of God. Listen with me, if you will, to Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. The psalmist sees the law not as restricting life, but as giving life, as describing a life where there is beauty and where there is power. James puts it this way, but the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he's heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. The perfect law that brings freedom. How is it that a law can bring freedom? I mean, we think of law, I mean, I don't equate law and freedom very much. It's interesting that the arts, all of the arts, have rules and principles and, and guidelines of beauty. What, what makes things beautiful? In, in, the, in the visual arts, there's, there's composition and balance and perspective. And in the musical art, there is harmony and intervals and rhythms. And there are laws and scales and all this stuff, relationships between the notes that we say, this is beautiful. And those, those laws of music are not there to restrict you. They're there to teach you the contours of beauty. 
to show you what beauty really looks like, to set you free. When a jazz musician steps into the concert hall, sits down at the piano, and just starts to pour over the keys, and he is expressing this freedom and creativity that is staggering. He's doing diminished ninths and augmented sevenths and thirteenths and syncopation, and, and it all works. It's amazing. He has not transcended the laws of music. He has assimilated them. Through countless hours at the keyboard playing his scales and practicing, he has begun to understand the contours of beauty in a way that none of us do. Few of us do. The law is there to teach us the contours of beauty in our lives. Jesus was like that jazz pianist with the law. He understood the law to such depth. Jesus did not transcend the law. Jesus embodied the law. He saw the law as a description of God's beauty and glory and righteousness. And he lived it out with phenomenal creativity and phenomenal freedom and beauty. He lived out the law of God. He was free because he understood the beauty of God's law. He delighted in that, and it set him free. He was so free that the fence-building Pharisees called him a drunkard and a glutton and a friend of sinners and tax collectors and a Sabbath-breaker. They just couldn't understand how he could have that kind of freedom. I think the psalmist explains it or, or states it so well in Psalm 119, verse 32, the psalmist says, I run in the path of your commands, for you have set my heart free. Do you see it? I'm, there, there is this freedom to run in the path of his commands. Why? Because God has set his heart free. The psalmist continually in Psalm 119 is praying things like, God, teach me, show me, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. And the psalmist sees the beauty of God's law. And he doesn't really need the fences because he sees the beauty of the paths of righteousness. And he runs down the paths of righteousness with joy and freedom because he has found the beauty of God through God's law. And he is delighted in God's law. But I want you to notice, he says this, I run in the path of your commands, for you have set my heart free. That freedom of his will, that release from the bondage to sin did not happen because of anything, because, solely because of him. It happened because God opened his eyes to the truth of God's will. And throughout that psalm, like I said, he is praying, God, open my eyes that I might see wonderful things in your life. You read Psalm 119. It's the longest psalm in the Bible. And it's this extensive love song that the psalmist proclaims about the law of God, how much he loves the law of God. In fact, he says he wakes, he sets his alarm to midnight so he can wake up in the middle of the night and thank God for his law. Yeah, I do that all the time. He, this man delights in God's law in amazing ways. And yet listen to the last verse of Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verse 176. The psalmist says this, I have strayed like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I have not forgotten your commands. He delights in the law of God. And it's not enough. It's not enough. 
he still does a face plan. He still falls prey to sin. Despite the fact that he delights in the word of God. Our delight in the word of God is a glorious thing. It is a good thing. But it is not enough to be set free from our captivity to sin. Paul puts it this way. If you have your scriptures, I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 7, verse 21. Romans 7, verse 21. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. Listen to this, verse 22. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. In my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Paul says, Paul's like, God, this, this, this isn't fair. <laughs> I delight in your word. I long to obey you. It's, it's the earnest desire of my heart, and yet... I am a prisoner to sin. I am a wretched man. I am stuck and I desperately need deliverance. And then what's he say next? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul has seen that what the law was powerless to do, though he delighted in it, Jesus Christ was able to do. Romans 8, verse 1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Paul says that the law was powerless to make us righteous in the sight of God. You and I are lawbreakers. The only thing the law can do for us in that sense is condemn us in the sight of God. But in Galatians, Paul said, in the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law to redeem those under law. Jesus Christ came as a baby and lived a perfect life under the law of God, perfectly fulfilling the law of God, and by his perfect life, he earned by his works the promised blessing of the law. What was that? God's favor and God's goodness and God's kindness and God's love. Christ, by his obedience to the law, earned the blessing of the law. And when we place our faith in Christ, not only does he take our disobedience and the curse that we have earned on himself, but he counts to our account his righteousness. And not only his righteousness, but the favor of God and the blessing of God that his perfect obedience earned. You and I are saved by works. Just not our works, but the finished perfect work of Jesus Christ. It is by his work we are made righteous in the sight of God. And as glorious and as spectacular as that is, it's not enough. Because you see, if we're going to walk in freedom, not only do we need to be set free from the penalty and the punishment of sin, but we must be set free from the power of sin. 
Let's continue reading in Romans 8.5. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death. But the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. There are two things we need to be saved from. And the law was powerless to save us from the, from the penalty of our sin. It was powerless to save us from, from the power of our sin. Christ saved us from both. You see, you and I were made holy and righteous in the sight of God, not simply so that we can keep our backsides out of hell. God made us holy in his sight so that we might be a suitable temple for the Spirit of God, the Spirit who raised Christ Jesus from the dead to take up residence in us. You were cleansed and made holy so that God might take up residence in you in the person of the Spirit of God. And it is that Spirit who takes our hearts captive. Let's continue reading. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. But you received a spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Daddy, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Paul says that the Spirit empowers us to put to death the misdeeds of the body. To set us free from this prison of sin that holds our desires captive. But how is it that we put to death the misdeeds of the body by the power of the Spirit? Paul tells us here. He said the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. That God loves us. That God wants what's best for us. That his call on our life, though it be difficult, is what is best for us and what is for his glory. The Spirit of God testifies with our hearts that our best and God's glory are not two different things. They are one and the same. You see, at the root of every one of our sins is a failure to believe that God knows what's best for us, God wants what's best for us. If we truly believe that God knows what's best for us and wants what's best for us, we would obey every time. And this is the work of the Spirit, to testify with our hearts, if God did not withhold his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how much more will he not also along with him give us all things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That is the testimony of the Spirit that sets us free from the prison of fear, free to walk in the way of God, to step out into obedience. And when we step into obedience, there is a surprising result. 
Jesus says this in John 14, 21. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey. And if you obey, I will reveal myself to you. Jesus says that our experience of intimacy with him is contingent on our obedience. You might not like that, but this is Jesus. So let me read it again. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. I mean, that, that might sound harsh, that, that our intimacy with Jesus is contingent on obedience, but it's a beautiful thing. It's a glorious thing. There is this virtuous cycle in obedience, where by faith we trust in the goodness of our Father, and we step out in obedience. And when we step out in obedience, we see in a fresh new way the goodness of God and the beauty of God, and that encourages our heart to do what? Step out in obedience all the more. And the more we step out into obedience, the more God reveals to us the beauty of who he is and the glory of who he is. It is a call to taste and see that the Lord is good. And to have our obedience come running into the presence of God with joy. Yes, surrendering. Yes, pain. But pressing into the presence of God, knowing that obedience opens my eyes to the beauty all the more of who God is. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, this call to freedom, this call to live a life that sees the beauty of God's world and the beauty of God's way and lives with a freedom and a love and a glory and all, is, I'm in, man. I'm, but it doesn't stop there. Romans 8, 17. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Paul says that our eternal condition is dependent on us suffering with Jesus. Let me read that again. We are heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I don't want to suffer. It hurts. I don't like pain. And, and, and how is this call to share with Christ in his suffering a call to liberty and freedom? When I'm struggling with a migraine headache and it feels like someone has stabbed me in the forehead with an ice pick, I am not feeling particularly free. I'm a bit preoccupied by the ice pick in my forehead. And, and, and when the pain is making me vomit in the toilet, I'm not feeling very free to move about the country. It would not be a good idea at that point in time either. Pain holds us hostage. Pain can become so large in our life that is all we can see, and we are prisoners to pain. How is it that suffering can bring liberty? 1 Peter 4.1 Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves with the same attitude. 
Because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Suffering and pain in the hands of the Spirit is God's jailbreak for us. Because in the midst of suffering and pain, we are under no delusion that we can find life in this world. Suffering and pain testify to us that this world is broken and we are broken. And the Spirit uses that testimony of pain and suffering to say, your hope is not in the kingdom of this world that is broken. Your hope is in the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, which is perfect and holy and good. And this is your hope. It weans us from the comforts of this world and places our hope firmly in the coming kingdom of our Lord and sets us free from the bondage to comfort, free to live for the glory of God. Suffering has its place. But the call here in Romans is not merely a, a call to endure the besetting suffering of the world that, that all of us endure. It is a call to intentionally, purposefully step into the suffering of Christ Jesus. Stepping into the suffering. Philippians verse three, or chapter 3, rather, verse 10. Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, I want to know the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. The word there is koinonia, which means fellowship or partnership. Paul says, I want to partner with Christ Jesus in his suffering." Now, when Christ went to the cross, when Jesus went and suffered on the cross, there were two things he proclaimed to us. The first was the depth of his love for us, that he would suffer like that for us. Without words, the cross of Christ proclaims to us the profound love of God for us. But there's a second truth that the cross proclaims. It proclaims that Jesus' hope was not in the things of this world that he gave up. Jesus' hope was in the coming kingdom of God. Through his suffering, Jesus preaches to us a sermon without words that says, that proclaims to us in an undeniable way the love of God for us and the hope of the coming kingdom. And when we willingly put down the comforts of this world, put down the wealth of this world, sacrifice our time, our energy, our lives to care for the needy, to care for the poor, to care for those who are oppressed, the foreigner, the alien, the refugee, the child who needs parents. When we willingly step into a life that is costly, we proclaim with an eloquence no sermon can ever match we, compl- we proclaim to the world the love of God and the hope of the kingdom. This is the sermon the world needs to hear. They're tired of our words. When we step into the suffering of Christ for the sake of the needy and the oppressed, when we part with the comforts of this world that we might care for others and be a blessing to them, when we walk in that kind of sacrificial obedience, 
the world will take notice. This is what the early church did. They lived with such radical, sacrificial obedience, sharing their, their wealth with anyone in need. They rejoiced as their heads were severed from their body that they were martyrs in heaven. They were burned at Nero's garden parties as torches and still rejoiced in the, because their hope was in the kingdom of God. And the message of their suffering was so profound that it brought the nation of Rome to its knees before the cross of Christ. I thank God for the way many of you are preaching that message by your lives taking into your homes children in need of love and care through adoption or fostering, giving of yourselves to care for women who are at a place where they are having to make just an excruciating decision, bringing the love of Christ with you to them into that situation. And those of you who have partnered with ministries like Dorcas Way to seek to care for those experiencing poverty and hunger, at deep expense to yourself, many of you. But I want you to know that your obedience preaches to a lost world the love of God and the hope of the kingdom like no sermon ever will. So preach on. Preach on, press into the freedom that your hearts have been taken captive by the love of Christ, set you free from the comforts of this world, free to live for his kingdom, free to partner with him in suffering. Preach on. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Amen.